0: This is CHUO 89.1 FM. Welcome to this week's episode of The Mosaic. We're going to take a look at what's going on in Ottawa through in-depth discussion. Whether it's social justice or music and art, we're covering it all to highlight the voices of our diverse community. Today, a psychologist and researcher who developed an evidence-based program against chronic homelessness. We speak with him about his research and the policies it's inspired, and how the University of Ottawa is celebrating his work.
1: The battle to end homelessness is in part demonstrating what is possible with programs like the one we're talking about. Ultimately, if we want to end it permanently and uh, at a national scale, we have to advocate for a right to housing.
0: Today's also the anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. The Canadian War Museum is hosting an exhibit on a lesser-known history of the war, Canadian Prisoners of War in Hong Kong. Then, we look ahead to the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. We hear from the John Humphrey Centre for Peace and Human Rights about how human rights have evolved with time and how their Canadian namesake contributed to the Declaration and international rights. Finally, the debut of a CHUO show aiming to address biases in journalism today. Point of Skew with James Brennan. Stick around. I'm Lauren Rolston. We've got all that and more coming up on The Mosaic. Dr. Samson Barris came to the Capitol this week. The researcher is based in the United States, but this week the University of Ottawa is highlighting his work as it influences international policy. In the 90s, the Montreal native turned housing first into a global movement, emphasizing the need to address the housing issue before trying to fix underlying issues of unhoused folks. Dr. Simbaris was celebrated on Monday with a ceremony and an honorary doctorate from the university. I spoke with him about the award over Zoom this morning, and here's our conversation. Just to kick it off, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, can you Thank tell you. me a little bit about the ceremony that happened on Monday?
1: Well, it was very... Uh how can I say it was elegant and festive? There was a lot of tradition to it, you know. It's very well organized and had a feeling of participating in something that um had years and years of, of tradition to it, you know, from the music to the ritual. The president read a very nice speech summarizing some of the work I had done. And um then it was sort of the Ceremony of the award, and then I gave a brief speech, you kind know, of thanks, and um, and also on the topic of homelessness and you know, what we could be doing about it.
0: Mm-hmm. And when did you find out that you were going to be honored that way?
1: Oh, it was uh, a few months ago, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. What was your reaction like?
1: <laughs> I was, I was like delighted, surprised, you know, and uh, I, I. I it was, it was wonderful, actually. I mean, I, I especially appreciated that it was a Canadian university, because you know, I've been working in the States for a long time. And But I grew up in Montreal. Most of my education was there, and I went to college there, and then I went to graduate school in the States. So having worked here with the Canadian project uh, called At Home Chez Swann, which was a, a national study from 2009 to 2014, I worked with huge team that included people from the university, you know, Tim Aubrey, Professor Aubrey from the University of Ottawa and many other people from the University of Ottawa, but it was also Toronto and Vancouver, Winnipeg, uh, Montreal and Moncton. So it was a a national team and that work had a huge impact, not only in terms of the research evidence that it produced, but it also changed policy in Canada for Mm -hmm. the five years following so it it conjured back to a time where it was incredibly productive and impactful so it was a reminder of that and and also just uh, the leadership of canadian education research and policy not only nationally here but that study then influenced other countries the french did a national study afterwards and, and this study still is a feminal study that's referred to in a lot of countries around the globe as uh, evidence of proof of the effectiveness of housing. Wow, First, you know, it was over a hundred papers that came out of that study.
0: Wow, and how how, how does that feel?
1: <laughs> well, it's when, when you're going through it, you know this is huge and important, and then after it's over, the the magnitude of it is actually increased because it keeps having influence long after the event itself.
0: Kind of snowball effect. Do you think if you yeah, went like yeah. back in time and you could tell your past self that this was going to be the result, what would the reaction have been?
1: It's an interesting question. I, I think that this was a, a study that comes along very rarely in the life of a researcher. You know, there was a $110 million investment by the federal government the vast majority of the money went to services, you know, rent and, you know, for housing people. But the proportion that went to, to do the study definitely uh, provided the kinds of resources where you could do excellent work, you know, quantitative, qualitative. So I think we were aware that we were entrusted with the task that was uh, hugely important. And I, and I think everyone on the team, was very respectful and diligent in in producing the best possible work Mm. i i I think that um if we went back would we do anything differently i i I don't know that we would do anything differently as we were going through it i think there was a a self-awareness that you know we're doing something really important here and and we need to do it well
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and and Clearly you did. Uh, you guys have done excellent work that's inspired policies across Canada, like you said, but also in the States and Europe. And um, it, But before we talk more about the housing first model, um, mm-hmm. can you tell me a bit about chronic homelessness?
1: Well, the focus on chronic homelessness is something that is of great concern because it is the group of people among the homeless population that is the most vulnerable. You know, I mean, even walking around Ottawa today, you know, cold weather, there are people outside wrapped in coats and sometimes sleeping bags that are actually on the street. So it it's not anything where people can comfortably walk by and not notice that group, the chronically homeless, are the ones that the public is most concerned about, policymakers are most concerned about. They're clearly the group among the homeless that didn't become homeless for a short time and bounce back, there's still out there, and so they're more vulnerable, they're more disabled in many ways, and just providing them with a rent supplement or a place to live uh wouldn't be enough. It's people who need assistance in getting housed, moving into housing, and then staying housed i mean so it's it's a group that um you know, if we can't end homelessness for everyone, they would be the ones you'd want to end homelessness for first, because it won't survive very long if we don't. Mm. It's really that urgent.
0: And helping them out with this housing first model, that kind of entails there's um, multiple different factors at play. So while there may be issues with addictions or mental health or education, those can be aided better along the way, but housing is is the main issue first. Um, can you tell me why Housing First? Just walk me through that process.
1: Well, to understand, I think it's important to know what is the alternative because Housing First is something that was developed as an alternative to treatment first because the services that we have and continue to have, the majority of services for people who are homeless, require that the person is sober, is taking medication, somehow in good shape in order to be moved into housing based on the belief that they need to be well-organized in order to succeed in housing. But that actually sets up a kind of impossible situation for people to get themselves together before housing. And so it was after years of failure of that model that we developed This alternative model, which is let's house people first and then get them into treatment. It did require a uh, riskier approach, taking a chance that the person could actually manage housing, even with those conditions that they were facing. Mm -hmm. In hindsight, of course, it was absolutely the right thing to do because by providing the housing first, it took the person out of that survival mode that or they're on the street where they can't think of anything else besides where can i rest where's a safe place to sleep where am i getting my next meal there there's there's nothing allows them the energy or space to think about anything else other than getting through the day the minute they move into housing all of that survival mode is soothed person is calmer they're safer, they're resting, they're sleeping in a bed, they're warm, they can think about other things. Uh, they're not on automatic survival mode. They're like, oh, what's next? And how am I feeling? And where does my life go from here? And of course, they have someone knocking on the door and saying, how are you doing today? And how can I help you? Mm. So the recovery from both homelessness and other troubling situations happens a lot quicker and a lot better by reversing the sequence and providing housing before treatment Mm -hmm. and providing all the supports for treatment after housing
0: right right housing is like a platform for safety and security before launching you into your next endeavor um uh so it's this housing first model it is rooted in the philosophy that all people deserve housing and i hate to sound pessimistic but Today, I, I don't know if I see that in a lot of policymakers. Why aren't we seeing this more prevalent in our day-to-day life? Why are we still seeing so much homelessness?
1: Well, that's a great question. Um, and I think, and maybe, and maybe it's naive to assume these things, but I think that public policy is driven by political will and political will is driven by the opinions of the people in the country. So the advocacy for a right to housing position, I think, is the way to go, because then we wouldn't be talking about, well, what will this cost, and do people deserve this, a kind of a almost a business model valuing the public policy from a market perspective, which is where. Policymakers go to if they're not driven by a social justice mandate to provide health care, for example. We have now a national health plan that took a lot of effort and a lot of advocacy to move in that direction. I think the battle to end homelessness is in part demonstrating what is possible with programs like the one we're talking about. Ultimately, if we want to end it, Permanently and uh, at a national scale, we have to advocate for a right to housing, and and that's um, you know that's an ongoing that's an ongoing battle. Mm-hmm. But we have the, the evidence, we have the rationale. I think we need more people to know that this thing has a solution. That there is a solution to homelessness, and that we need to advocate for it, and the way to advocate for it is to make it a matter of uh, the human right
0: and um, this is a lot of hard work and it can be very heavy and um, at times of course rewarding but uh, why why for you why this line of work
1: well I mean yes it's 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 a more difficult program than to have something that is a clinic-based program where you go in, you know, and people come for their appointment and then it's five o'clock and then you go home and, you know, to your life. But, but the level of reward and the level of outcomes, you know, the, the feeling like you're doing something that's actually helping people's lives is, is not, is not to be underestimated. Um, and I think also to see that a program that started with, you know, Years ago, 50 people, you know, and now is national policy and helping hundreds of people in different countries is, is extremely ratifying and reinforcing. You want to do more of it, kind of spread, spread the word because it really has a positive, huge impact immediately on people's lives. So, um, that's kind of addictive.
0: <laughs> Your words are encouraging to hear. Uh, do you have anything else that you'd like to add?
1: I have one thing to add which is uh, an expression of great gratitude to the University of Ottawa because when you talk about you know work being hard and what does it take to keep going I think the kind of ceremony that I participated in on Monday and the joy of that is uh, it's just so affirming and uh, and a wonderful boat of encouragement and confidence to keep going
0: of course well thank you so much for taking the time with me thankful
1: thank you Lauren thanks a lot
0: that was my conversation with Dr. Samson Barris about his research on chronic homelessness and his recent award from the University of Ottawa. And now, CHUO's Arya Gunday brings us a history of the Battle of Hong Kong and its anniversary, with more information on Canadian prisoners of war.
2: Today marks the 82nd anniversary of the Battle of Hong Kong, one of World War II's first battles in the East Asian theater. It started on the same morning as the Pearl Harbor attack, when the Empire of Japan launched a second offensive in the British Crown Colony of Hong Kong. A few weeks earlier, Canada's Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King had reluctantly sent two Canadian battalions to the region to support Britain in what he thought was a purely defensive mission. The battalions were severely under-equipped and most soldiers hadn't even seen real battle before. Eighteen days of merciless fighting ensued against a battle-hardened Japanese military. But on Christmas 1941, the British finally surrendered. 290 Canadians had died. The 1,975 that remained were taken to Japanese camps as prisoners of war, where they would remain for nearly four years. 264 Canadians died in these camps as the Japanese were known to be extremely brutal to their prisoners, who endured years of beating, hard labor, and inadequate diets. The majority of Canadian deaths resulted from illness and slow starvation. In 1945, the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki forced the Japanese to officially surrender. The American military then began to free prisoners of war, providing them with aid in the process. 1,418 Canadians had survived the torture and were now free to return home. Last week, Hermidas Fredette, the last surviving Canadian veteran of the Battle of Hong Kong, passed away. He was 106 years old, and his death marks the end of a difficult period in Canadian history. This evening, an event at the Canadian National War Museum will remember Hermidas Fredette and the other brave Canadians who fought and endured horrors beyond comprehension in Asia. The event will play a selection of clips from the movie The Fence and host a panel of distinguished experts to discuss the topic. The audience will be invited to join in and participate in a Q&A with the panelists. For CHUO, I'm Arya Gunde.
0: This weekend we'll see the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The milestone document came to us in December of 1948 in a post-World War II environment. The declaration set out protections for all human beings against torture and secured rights to religion and education. Eleanor Roosevelt is widely known to have drafted the initial document, but Canadian John Peters Humphrey also played a major role in its development. I reached out to the John Humphrey Centre for Peace and Human Rights and spoke with Executive Director Renée Vaugois during a busy week of planning for this year's Ignite Change Convention leading to the Declaration's anniversary. Here's our conversation from Tuesday.
3: So yeah, this year, 2023, is the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is a pretty big deal for us at the John Humphrey Centre for Peace and Human Rights because we are kind of a legacy of John Peters Humphrey, who was the principal drafter of the Universal Declaration. So... We are in the fifth day of 10 days of human rights uh, convention programming. So, to honor the 75th anniversary, we really kind of wanted to push Canadians to think about all the domestic human rights issues that we face, also international, because there's, there's, you can't really separate some of this stuff, especially when we're talking about migrants and undocumented workers. So, we've built a 10 day program where we're kind of digging into the various communities that are uniquely impacted, that are traditionally marginalized. So we started in day one looking at Indigenous rights and children's rights and genocide and started to weave through into anti-racism, anti-Black racism, anti-Asian racism. And then on Sunday, we looked at undocumented workers and migrants and those that don't have full citizenship and what that means. Um, And yesterday was digging into disability. Today, we're really digging into trans issues in particular, looking at You know, two-spirit, trans, queer, lesbian, bisexual, gay, intersex, asexual, all the sexual and gender diversity, but looking at, like, the inclusion and wellness. Um, And so really trying to create these spaces where people are being able to learn from lived experience, but also start to understand, like, where do we as Canadians maybe need to build and strengthen together? So tomorrow we're looking at gender-based violence, um, and then on Thursday we move into prison and incarceration, Right. So prison justice. And then on Friday, we move into poverty related. And then we start to move into December 10th on Saturday, which is December 9th. We're going to really look at the mechanisms that we have to claim human rights, because even though we have these things on paper, um, what does that mean? What are the mechanisms that we have to seek remedy, to seek justice? Are they working? Are they not? Um, And then on December 10th, which is like the big day, we are going to be really centering and focusing on how do we create a bit more movement and intersection across the groups that are doing human rights work in Canada. So that was a big goal with this convention is there's so many beautiful groups in this country doing work around human rights, but they're because we're working on queer rights or we're working on disability rights, we're all in these different sectors, but we're not connecting. So our hope with this convention was to create those intersections. And that's what I'm finding beautiful today in this session I'm just in on transphobia, as I see people from the disability community in there having these conversations and seeing those alignments and understanding, like we are not separate, we are together. And so on December 10th, our real goal is to start to really create intentional space for dialogue on that, but also reflect on Canada is just kind of going through its universal periodic review at the United Nations. And so Canada right now is supposed to be doing engagement with civil society to look at the recommendations that have come out of the UN. How do we move those forward? How do we implement them? But there's been a huge gap in Canada in terms of how they consult and how they engage with civil society. It's actually been brought up in the periodic review process before, like Canada needs to get better. And so we know it's not necessarily just also on the government of Canada, it's also on civil society of like, how do we come together? So we're going to create that space to really talk about that and how do we mobilize? And, you know, Canada is putting itself up for a seat at the UN Human Rights Council, we have to create these bridges between the government and between people who are actually doing and living the work so that we can move forward together. So so that's kind of what we're up to. December 10th is like a big day, but we're going to end that day really, you know, reflecting on John Humphrey, but also reflecting on another human rights hero that we have in Canada, Gordon Hirabayashi, who who was a Japanese um, kind of resistor and um, had a really beautiful legacy and taught at the University of Alberta. So we're working with the National Association of Japanese Canadians to honour him and really put his name on the table on the
0: 10th as well. So a lot of things going on for us on December 10th. <laughs> Huge. So many massive issues. But like you said, yeah. like there's an intersectional approach. Like There's got to have that community conversation going on. And um, yes. you mentioned it as well, Saturday, that's 75 years of the Declaration. Before we get to that, though, I want to talk to you about that in a second. But I, I'd like it if you could tell me a little bit more about the center's namesake, uh, John Humphrey.
3: Hey, yeah. So John Humphrey was originally from, like, New Brunswick. What's interesting is we know him as this lawyer who was at the United Nations, but he was he has a really interesting story where he was orphaned young, he actually lived with disability, but he was brought to the United Nations to work with Eleanor Roosevelt and that to kind of put the meat together for this Universal Declaration. So he was really the person who facilitated, brought the diverse folks together at the United Nations, facilitated those conversations and drafted the Universal Declaration based on those. So uh, I know there's some historical documents of all his like writing from those times. So he was really about taking all these ideas, bringing them into one, into these these 30 articles within the Universal Declaration. And he helped to kind of get that moving in the UN in 1948, but he made a commitment to stay at the United Nations until he could see this declaration become international law. Because one of the important things to understand about a declaration of the UN is it's just a principal document. It's this aspirational document, and it's not necessarily international law. And he really knew that to move that next step and for it to have meaning, it needed to become international law. So he stayed at the United Nations till 1966. So 18 years it took to turn the declaration into international law through the International Covenant on Civil Political Rights and then the International Covenant on Economic and Social Rights. So once in 1966, those two covenants became kind of international law he then came back to Canada and when he came back to Canada not only was he teaching at McGill but he was really focused on this belief that while we have these international documents that's a first step but if civil society doesn't know about them then it doesn't matter they don't really exist if they're not in the psyche of people and that they become values that we live by because i think when we talk about human rights it's not just about having a legal framework where we can seek accountability. It's also about a way we live our life. The Universal Declaration was meant to be these things that we all need to live a life of well-being. So he came back, he started the Human Rights Education Foundation back in 1966, which was a, a really intended to be focused on human rights education. Like, let's get people understanding what the Declaration is, why it's important, so that we can actually make it real in our communities. And so, the legacy of that is that Equitas um, in Montreal is kind of the living legacy of the original Human Rights Education Foundation. But one of our founders, Gerald L who was a professor at the University of Alberta, was was Humphrey's student at McGill, and he came to, you know, Edmonton and started to build uh, kind of like a Western arm of the Human Rights Education Foundation, of which we kind of slowly emerged from. In the 1998, uh, we had again a commemoration of the 50th anniversary here in Edmonton we had 700 people from 34 countries gathered here with Archbishop Desmond Tutu Mary Robinson like really incredible powerful event and it was from that that um, Margaret Kunstler who was Humphrey's wife really got behind things too and we became the John Humphrey Centre for Peace and Human Rights as we know it today so again that intention of like human rights education because I think the, the thing about that is that the belief behind a lot of the work of human rights education was not just adults, but it's through the minds and hearts of children and young people that we can make generational change in our communities. So that was kind of the, the logic behind it all.
0: Wow. Wow. And he sounds like he was really committed. Like you said, that's years and years and years of work to see real change in the way people live their life. 18 years, 18 years to just be at the UN to try
3: and get those, that international law, like that, I mean, that must have been the most frustrating experience ever. <laughs> but.
0: but it paid off, right? Yes. Yeah, and yeah. He's, he's a celebrated Canadian for his work with human rights. Like you said, we're going to be commemorating his work again on the 75th anniversary. But now, if we can take it back to the Universal Declaration itself. Like you said, it's not international law. It's kind of a roadmap that really solidified yeah. the rights that every human being should have that's inalienable. Could you tell me a little bit more about what life may have looked like before the Declaration? Well, if you think about the timing of when the Declaration came into play,
3: it was post-Second World War. So, you know, we were coming out of a time when we were seeing the atrocities of genocide and the war like the Roma the Jewish people you know all those harms oh my goodness you know and then you think of Nagasaki and Hiroshima like all of that happened prior to 1948 and this feeling within the international community that we had to have something to ground us in and and while there had been movements around building international spaces before then this was like the first time the international community actually could coalesce because of how bad things were, you know, just in terms of like migrants and, and everything. So it was a really pertinent time for us. And I think the universal declaration was really to give us that framework so that we could find peace without these human rights where we won't have peace. If people are struggling for food, if they're, they're not housed, if they're in conflict situations, it, it will continue to, evade peace if that makes sense so human rights is really meant to be that framework for peace so so that was the the kind of where we were in 1948 and and after the second world war and then when you think about where we are now Mm -hmm. it's iconic like when i think of 75 years from that even though we have these declarations and now conventions and this international law we have so far to go um, because it just needs to get built into the psyche and the way people live the way people work But into kind of legislation, but ironically, 75 years later, who would have thought when we started planning this convention last year, you know, Russia and Ukraine was kind of just starting to kick off, but who would have thought we would see what we're seeing in Israel and Gaza? Like, and that what's happening there is the exact reason why we had the Universal Declaration in the first place. And here we are.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do you think for people who are a little bit maybe naive or removed from the conversation about the declaration of human rights how does this declaration play into their day-to-day life without them even noticing it Oh my goodness like in
3: in so many ways when I think about human rights I always try to compartmentalize it down a little bit like to me there's kind of four critical elements of human rights one is like we all have the right to access our basic needs so provision rights I call them so food, healthcare, uh they're kinda like those economic rights. And so, you know, we see every day just people not being able to even access basic things like the session that I was just in around transphobia and how those experiences within the healthcare system or accessing food or accessing support services are not true for all of us. And then I think the other element is this right to participate which a lot of people will associate with political rights, but it's so much more than that. It's that right to participate in your school, in your workplace. It's this idea that no matter where we are, we have a right to participate in the decisions that affect us. You know, when we're in a doctor's office, we know our body just as much as the doctor knows our body, and we need to be part of those decisions. Otherwise, there's no sustainability or long-term longevity for decisions that get made. And so that that right to participate is so critical and not everybody has that right. You know, even when you look at municipal committees and stuff like that, it's not people necessarily with lived experiences in those spaces, so being really conscious of who has access to that right to participate. The other one is protection rights, and that's just that idea that I should be able to exist in society beside you and not have my rights infringed. So even if you believe, say I'm a a trans person, even if you believe that in your religion, that I'm not right, doesn't give you right to infringe on my being. It doesn't give you right to outwardly hate me or treat me badly. So this piece that people are having nowadays around my freedom of belief versus freedom from being hurt by people. So that piece about protection is, is that idea that we should be protected from harms of other people, other people violating our rights and government violating our rights businesses you name it Hmm. but then the last area of rights is this idea of like the right to remedy justice so if if my rights are violated i should have a place where i can seek remedy it doesn't have to be in the court system it could be restorative processes but those four areas of rights are the basics that we all deserve to live in society to be safe in society because if we don't feel safe like if i'm experiencing that hate because of my gender identity I'm not going to feel safe enough to practice my right to participate. They're they're also fundamentally connected. And I think people associate the Declaration of these human rights as these lofty things on paper when they're actually how we live and be together every day.
0: Mm. And, you know, they were enshrined th- that way. The foundation was set in 1948. And fast forward to today, I get the impression that our rights are kind of ever-evolving and growing day by day but taking it back to that international collaboration that took place to make that universal declaration a thing I kind of see an echo in it when you're collaborating with these community groups to have those intersectional conversations so what for you is the importance of having these community-wide conversations? I think it's really
3: otherwise we get stuck into these kind of oppression olympics and to me, it's a bit of people in activists in that will talk about like the divide and conquer mentality when we're all operated in our own little segments and the amount of resources that we put into that, but also how hard that struggle is to fight for rights. When people come together and the leveraging of each other, when you're having a group, maybe they're really strong in a specific skill set than another one. Like there's this, this cross learning that can happen that, also creates a lot more power in us coming together so all these little fragmented movements don't give us the energy and momentum we need to really push back and it's not I guess my language might sound a bit strong like push back because it's to me it's not about pushing back it's actually all about like how do we engage constructively with our governments to advance these rights because it's not about us versus them it's not about you're doing this wrong you kind of hit in the point when you say it's an evolving thing it's this recognition that we have to progressively realize human rights to do that is not going to come through us bashing at each other it's going to come through us having momentum and dialogue and because it's through collective wisdom and understanding that i really believe that we can build sustainable strong solutions that matter. And if we're having separate conversations, or maybe the the trans community is wanting this, and maybe the disability community is wanting this, and maybe women want this, but we're not coalescing. It's just background noise. So to me, I just don't think we can make really cohesive progress. And then we're just constantly putting people in these boxes and these silos. And, you know, at the United Nations, we have all these different conventions for Convention on the Rights of Children, the Convention on Rights of Persons with Disabilities, the Convention on Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. So again, we have all these pockets. But even like in the UN, they started to recognize like, hmm, this is not helping us to say, look at a country like Canada and cohesively say, here's your gaps. Like, it's not just this community. And so the universal periodic review process, which Canada is going through, was really intended to create that space because human rights was always meant to be universal and interconnected. But when we start having all these separate groups, it's disconnected. So it kind of moves away from the whole theory and heart-centeredness that human rights should have.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's like a very people-first approach rather than seeing someone and just seeing the box that they've been put in. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I guess that kind of, I'm running out of time here, so I'm just kind of running to my last question, but how do you use these rights for people in your day-to-day interactions? Oh, well, in in many ways,
3: I think there's maybe two things that stand out to me. One, we use them as a way to facilitate dialogue, because I am a strong believer that human rights do not exist unless they're engaged in public discourse. So if we're not engaging in conversation, I think we can use human rights as a common denominator to engage conversations on. So we can say, let's talk about this right to participate or the right to housing, and let's have a conversation around that because it's a common interest of us all across our intersection. So for me, human rights is a really valuable tool for dialogue and for helping community to see how we can collectively move rights forward and recognize it as a universal construct rather than attached to a specific label. The other piece that we use human rights for is We'll often get people coming to us who have like severe human rights issues. They don't know where to go. And so we really try to work with people to understand how they can use the language of human rights to move their issues forward. So for example, if you if you have an undocumented worker who's facing barriers to access in the healthcare system, we can use the language of human rights to make the case and to say to the hospital or whatever, like, According to the convention on this, this is the right that we all have. This person is not getting that right. How do we work to address that? So I find that the language of human rights, while it can create tensions sometimes, it actually can give us the tools we need to, to talk to the public sector, talk to the government or whatever and say, but we have committed to the convention on the rights of persons with disabilities. So these are our obligations. And it's international law. So we recognize that, yeah, we're not perfect, but this is what we should be aspiring to. And it just gives us a bit of weight in the work. And I think that's a really important piece.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a really strong reinforcement. Um, and I guess, how, how do you feel about the work that you do? It's a lot, you're busy. Um, what makes it worth it for you at the end of the day? Um,
3: it's a really good question. I mean, cause I, it is heavy work. Like it is really heavy and hard on the heart. You know one of the panelists was just talking about how angry they get and how angry they are but i think there's those moments where you know you're working with a woman who's incarcerated and she's been having a horrible time in there and you just see this little shift that happens within the staff of the correction center or something you know what uh, the moments that matter to me are those moments of aha that i see people have like i've been facilitating a dialogue Here's an example. As I was facilitating a dialogue one time, and, and I had people from the Yellow Vest Movement, some Indigenous grandmothers, some people from the Muslim community, law enforcement, and the media at the table. It was so difficult to facilitate. But by the time we facilitated this conversation, the woman from one of the women from the Yellow Vest Movement went, Oh, okay, I get it. I'm actually not going to go forward with that rally on the weekend because I see what it means for you versus for me and those are the moments that make me go yes because it's just these shifts in understanding of people being able to see somebody other than themselves but also to see their social location and their their privilege within that and understand what oppression means and so when I see people be able to have a voice and be heard that's what's important to me and I I think I strive every day to make sure that we're creating those spaces where folks who don't have their rights fulfilled can safely put their perspective and views forward, because that's where the gold is. That's where the work is. Those of us that have that privilege to kind of yield and give space and allow that to transform our brain. Because when you've had privilege, you don't know what you don't know. Everybody, we don't know what we don't know. I mean, I'm a political scientist. I don't know what engineering is, you know. And so we make these assumptions of what we all should know and what is common sense, and that is not reality. And so it's just those those moments that I think are really special for me that I I feel uh, movement forward. And just working on individual cases with people, like I'm working on a case right now where I've seen an educational institution go, oh, I see that barrier. Okay, mm-hmm. well we're going to shift our policies around that. And it and it those little things just they mean so much so wow. and they give hope so yeah. that's a long answer Sorry. no
0: that's that's <laughs> amazing actually that aha moment I feel like is so human it really really signals that learning and growing that we were talking about seeing like a person a human being rather than the label in that moment you kind of watch the label dissolve a little bit and I think that 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 was a great answer Thank you for all the work that you do. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Do you have anything else that you would like to add? No, I I mean, this International Human Rights Day, I just challenge everybody to really
3: sit back and contemplate on that. You know, don't hesitate to pull out the UDHR. It's not a long document. Look at it, what does it mean for you? Um, I think my most important message is, is like, think about the spaces that you're in and think about who's heard, who's seen, in your spaces. And make sure you just make that little adjustment in your life to make sure that others that aren't normally seen and heard, given that space. I just would really love to see that among everybody. Thank you, Renee. You're welcome.
0: Thank you. (laughs) That was my conversation with Executive Director of the John Humphrey Centre for Peace and Human Rights, Renee Bourgeois. We reached her from Edmonton. And now, the very first episode of Point of Skew, here's James Brennan.
4: Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Point of Skew, a show that brings to light how mass media can use tricks of syntax, punctuation, and word choice to play with, or skew our thinking and sentiments towards issues around the world. I'm James Brennan, a fourth-year communication student at the University of Ottawa, and it is my goal to bring these tricks to light. Like many, I look at the world through my phone, and interpret global events through what I see on tabloids and social media. With that being said, the current media ecosystem enables us to see and learn about events from around the world. This sounds amazing, to have every person in the world informed with facts and balance so that people can base their thoughts off an unbiased perspective. Yet sadly, this is not the case. This era in history is plagued by misinformation and the agendas of those who wish to skew our interpretation of world events to serve their purpose. It is in the video, print, and online journalism industries where it is most rampant, and where many people get their news from today. Through the use of different strategies and story structures, a population becomes misinformed and public opinion is susceptible to being swayed or skewed for a purpose. The goal of this series is to combat and call out these strategies by pulling back the sheet on and comparing two stories about recent global events with opposing views, and analyzing how their word choice, structure, and intent skew the story. The evaluation is based on three main facets that ultimately are what control most news outlets today. Funding, ownership, and political alignment are the three main blockers of truthful and factual reporting. This symptom of capitalism has drastically changed the media industry with the boom of social media as the number of impressions a story gets is more important than the actual content. When profits take precedent over journalistic duties it severely damages the system of checks and balances that maintain a democracy by sowing the seeds of doubt and fostering misinformation. This week we'll cover the ongoing Israel-Hamas conflict and the ongoing developments in Gaza which come to us from the New York Post and the Irish Examiner. The New York Post is a widely known journal and is owned by the Murdoch family, who will also own Fox and Fox News, a widely considered right-leaning media organization that specializes in gotcha journalism, a style that prioritizes drama and entraps interviewees. It is also noted that the New York Post holds a mixed factuality rating and possesses a right-leaning alignment. The Irish Examiner is a more left-leaning journal, and is an independent journal part of the Irish Times Group, a highly factual and reputable journal, compared to the Examiner, which possesses a mixed factuality rating in addition to a left-leaning alignment. The first point we'll look at is the article's headline, which is sometimes as far as the majority of readers go when browsing the internet. The headline is a carefully crafted sentence that is supposed to be the hardest-hitting point. It's meant to hook our attention. Journals use headlines to convey their alignment through word choice, carefully placed emphasis, and punctuation, all of which can drastically subvert a message. The New York Post's article has the headline of, quote, Israeli tanks at gates of Gaza City's largest hospital as 21 terrorists are killed at another medical facility, end quote. When analyzing this headline, the first observable is the word choice of terrorists when addressing Hamas and the connotations that are associated with the word, and it instantly takes an adversarial stance. Secondly, is the mention of being at the gates. This can be thought of as an end to a confrontation, as in at the gates of victory, or such an idea of being on the precipice of something. Mixing the adversarial wording, the victory-based structure, and political alignment of the journal All gives the reader the notion that evil is being defeated and victory is near. Comparing this to the Irish Examiner's headline of "We are inside a circle of death," Gaza's Al Shifa Hospital has tanks at its gates. Gives almost the complete opposite impression, as it reverses the at the gates saying and appears to come from a point of somebody in the hospital. As it replaces the. In the post's article with its in the examiners which gives it a possessive theme the quote within the headline also gives the opposite impression of the mention of the circle of death is one that instantly instills feelings of sadness and horror and paints a different picture than the one in the post the headline as a component is meant to entice the reader to get into the story of the article within the body and yet The headline is sometimes all that's needed to understand the position of what is to come within the article. Within the New York Post's article, it discusses how the hospital is turned into a quote terrorist nest and says that it is where hostages are believed to have been kept. With a statement such as this, it would be valuable to have an associated source, but there is nothing linked. However, later in the article, it mentions how this is corroborated by Israeli intelligence. Yet, based off the journal's stance, it doesn't prove to be the strongest support, as it inherently shows bias by picking and choosing specific sources. There are many instances of biased adverbs within the piece that give the scope of the journal's point of view, such as adding cowardly or embedded when describing how Hamas combatants hit among civilians, yet again having the Israeli defense forces as their main source. This article is an example of how word choice, and usage can severely impact a way a story is interpreted. If this article is read in a vacuum where the reader does not have any access to any other journal or source of information, their thinking would be skewed based off the words the writer chose to use that vilifies one side immensely or raising the actions of the other. It vividly picks a side and uses adverbs that insinuate deplorable traits onto the party they're discussing. This, in addition to the choice of sources, which have the Israeli Defense Forces as a main contributor of information used to write this article, drastically affect the reader's understanding of the ongoing situation in the Gaza Strip. The choice of sources is also something to be discussed as the article does reference a wide variety of outlets for this information, and yet the most referenced is a group fighting in this war and aligns with the orientation of the journal. When going deeper into the Irish examiner's article, with awareness of their left-leaning bias also raises points of using effective sources for information, as the Gaza Health Ministry is mentioned many times within quotes and as a source of statistics. However, when looking deeper into the motives of the ministry, as any critique would, one will quickly stumble upon how the group operates under the current sitting Hamas government. This raises the same issues as utilizing the IDF as a main source in articles. By understanding their position and motives, while taking their points with a grain of extra thought, it enables the reader to critically examine the given information. On either side, it is by no means a complete rejection of their quotes, as there is always a share of truth in something like this. But taking the time to understand the motivations of a source is always a healthy practice when consuming media. The Examiner article continues to take a more left-leaning stance on the conflict, and thankfully is missing the biased language witnessed within the post. But the main issue of how the article contends with how some statistics are missing a verifiable source as claims are made, but there's no way for the reader to fact check said statements, or look further into the stats. This is a dangerous precedent, as in academia students are always told to cite their sources. It adds legitimacy, and enables the reader to further their own understanding. Without a cited source, there's no way of confirming the actual statements. The two articles presented today are a prime example in confirming and evaluating sources within a journalistic piece. And in an age when anybody with a phone and an internet connection can post news articles, it is the legitimacy of an outlet that has the weight. This weight and credibility is earned through strong article writing and ensuring that all published pieces are based in fact and not opinion, unless claimed otherwise. The current stream of media we're experiencing right now has drawn a line between fact and truth. As truth has been warped into whatever the outlet's truth is, as statistics and claims are neatly chosen to support their stance, and an opposing view is rarely given. Thank you for listening today. And in a world of misinformation and fake news, it is always good to check the point of skew.
0: And that's it for this week's episode of The Mosaic. Thanks so much for tuning in. You can listen to this episode and previous ones on CHUO.FM. Music for The Mosaic is by Halizna. I'm Lauren Rolston, and we'll see you next week.